Welcome to the Knowles 24-7 podcast. I'm Brendan Sinone, uh, actually at Bob Ferrante's house today with Bob and Chris Nee. Uh, we're here because we were midway through a podcast a couple days ago. On uh, It was on Tuesday. We're recording this on a rainy Thursday in Tallahassee. And uh, Comcast decided to do what Comcast does best, which is not work. Two weeks in a row of uh, my internet not working and then Chris's internet not working. Uh, Not in that order necessarily, but uh, it was Comcastic. It was frustrating. So we're kind of starting from scratch here and we're going to talk about a a variety of topics today, guys. Uh, Starting off with the NFL draft. I know uh, a week late, but just a couple things because we got a bunch of questions about the draft and and people kind of want us to put a little perspective on it. Uh, And let's start off with what I think is the, the most pressing topic when talking about FSU and the draft, and that is... Uh, Dalvin Cook falling to the second round. Uh, Bob, I'll start off with you. Was that surprising to you that Dalvin goes 41st to the Minnesota Vikings, that he went that late in the second round? I think the only surprise really was that a player that gifted offensively was was still on the board and that no teams that are in the playoffs picking late in the first round decided to, you know, go for him. I, I thought the shoulder injuries, the three shoulder surgeries were going to be more of a factor than these supposed character and off-field concerns. But Dalvin's a guy who can help immediately, whether he's your primary back on first and second downs, if he plays on third downs. And, you know, as we talked about with the shoulder injuries, he can be placed with a complementary back where he doesn't have to carry the full load. He doesn't have to be the workhorse that he was at Florida State. But this is a guy who can improve your offense immediately from day one. Obviously, some concerns with the Vikings' offensive line, but I think this is a really good pick for a guy who can have a huge impact right away. Chris, was that a, a surprise, or would, would you categorize him him falling? I mean, is that is that fair to say that he he did he did fall from what we expected? Yeah, I think most people thought he was projected to go late to middle first round. Um, you know, around about seventeen with the Redskins was where most people thought he would come off the board first. You know, then trending towards the end of the first round. So the fact he didn't go in those first 32 picks is surprising. I think the biggest thing with Delvin and why it kind of doesn't make sense to me that he doesn't go in the first round is immediately after the draft when everybody's busy grading it, talking to sources, writing stories about which draft pick's going to win rookie of the year. You know, Daniel Jeremiah did this for NFL.com yesterday. He talked to five NFL personnel executives, got their opinion on who would NFL win NFL rookie, uh, offensive rookie of the year. Two out of five picked Delvin Cook. So you're telling me that this guy's not one of the 32 best players in the draft, one of the most valuable offensive players in the draft, doesn't go in the first round, just doesn't add up to me. I think it's kind of silly. I think it's foolish. I think he's better than the guy that went number two overall, Mitch Trubisky, to the Bears. You know, I think he outperformed him in the same league against the same opponents. I think he's a more reliable guy, and I understand that the running back position is devalued compared to the quarterback position. But, you know. He was the third best running back in the draft. He still ended up getting drafted as the third best running running back in the draft, but he's one of the top thirty-two players that were available in the NFL draft. I get like the you mentioned running backs being devalued, and that overall has been true. And I think Ezekiel Elliott going fourth overall and having the success that he did uh, in Dallas last year would kind of kind of reset that trend a little bit, where you see two guys going the first uh, round, or two, two guys in the top ten, with Leonard Fournette at LSU going to Jacksonville, and I. I understand why he goes that high. He's a big bruising back, and you think his game translates to the NFL because of his size, because of the the really rare blend of, of power and speed. And then Christian McCaffrey's a, a special player in his own right, and he goes eighth overall to to Carolina Panthers. But 
to me, it's weird that you have this giant gap in between. So there's teams saying, yeah, we're willing to spend a top 10 pick on guys that we think are special. And then there's just this huge discrepancy uh, from from eight to all the way to, to 41. No one takes a running back. And as much as I, I like Christian McCaffrey, and I remember Dalvin Cook talking about how he liked McCaffrey's game a couple years ago when he was talking about who he would vote for for the Heisman. Uh, McCaffrey's a guy you got to kind of be creative with the way you get him in space and stuff. And it's just, it's odd to me. It's like you, you have a guy who in Dalvin Cook that's a workhorse uh, that has shown he can he can take over games uh, at the running back spot goes that much further than someone who you have to kind of be creative with how you're going to use him. And not to say that I don't think McCaffrey's going to have a successful career because he has the the ingredients to do so, but. You have to be creative with the way you get him the football, whereas Dalvin Cook, you can just kind of give him the ball, you know, 15, 20 times and, and hope something special happens because he shows he can do that. Do, do you guys think that what we see with Dalvin falling, if we all kind of agree that, that he's a top 20 talent in the draft, goes 41st, was that because, and Bob, you touched on this a little bit, solely because of the off-field stuff that we'd heard about and some of the, you know, some of it was rumors, some of it's obviously legitimate concerns, or was it more of a combination of the shoulder injuries, of the fumble concerns, of... You know, not having great testing at the combine. Was was it all of this that kind of led into him not being a, a squeaky clean prospect, or was it mostly the off-field stuff that you think that from what we've heard? It was an accumulation of all of the above, and and plus, you know, as Chris mentioned, just the lack of of confidence in picking running backs in the first round. There just there hasn't been a lot of success. It's been a maybe a fifty-fifty proposition through the past few years. There have been drafts where where three running backs were taken in the first round and. And guys were were busts and out of the league within, you know, before the first contract was even up. So, I think enough general managers have been kind of burned by just putting out a first round pick on a guy and and losing him within a few years. So, I feel like in the end, Dalvin was a guy who was a first round quality caliber pick who fell to a team that didn't have a first round pick, and. You know, the Vikings didn't really think he was going to be in position for them to grab him, and I think they were kind of surprised. But one of the neat things about the draft is you're able to reset your board late Thursday night, early mm-hmm. Friday morning, and that's where the Vikings made the phone call to Dalvin Cook, spent 45 minutes on the phone. So any concerns they had, you know, you maybe you're not 100% sure about the pick, but you at least have a long conversation with a guy, mm-hmm. and you know this is a guy who I, I have more confidence in because I've taken the time to have a, a conversation. And the Vikings made a play to get Dalvin Cook. They traded up, and the Philadelphia Eagles reportedly also made a play. So, yeah, when teams were able to recalibrate and still you see he was still there, um, you saw a couple at least try to make an attempt, but still falls to, to 41st. Yeah, and one other thing to add about him dropping late in the first round is if you look at some of the teams that he was kind of associated with leading up to the actual draft, a lot of them landed guys in the draft that were guys that fell themselves you know the Redskins were kind of the first pick 17 they get Jonathan Allen defensive end from Alabama I don't think if you ask people a month ago if Jonathan Allen would be there at 17 you would get many yeses Bucks at 19 take OJ Howard it's pretty clear the Bucks are trying to put big offensive receiving weapons around Jameis Winston OJ kind of tumbled it was a good pick for them mm-hmm. Packers were one that was on the board they traded that pick away um, 49ers were definitely a team that could afford taking a good running back, but they got Reuben Foster, who was a very high-valued pick late in the first round. So, you know, it kind of makes some sense when you look back at it in retrospect that he did tumble because in the back half of the round, some of the teams that took guys instead of Delvin that needed running backs, they did get valued picks. So it made some sense. 
even then, the, and it kind of comes back to with running back and the value there. Like, you know, if you're not spending a, a top 10 pick on a guy you think is a game changer like Fournette, you know, and all of a sudden Cook's fall, falling a little bit, and well, Joe Mixon's still around, and even he has his bags, but, man, he's really, really talented. Or you have a Kareem Hunt from Toledo that I really like, um, Deontay Foreman from Texas, Alvin Kamara from Tennessee, guys that you think can make an impact, maybe not in the same realm as a Dalvin Cook, but but when you're weighing value versus, you know, where you're taking a guy and, and where, you know, you can spend that draft pick on other needs, like you take a, you know, a Kareem Hunt in the early third round, or you take a, you know, Dalvin Cook in the first round, and that's kind of what teams were weighing. The Vikings were ecstatic, though, that he fell to uh, to them at 41, and I think it was, uh, was it Rick Spielman, yeah, the Vikings GM said that Pat Schumer, the, the offensive coordinator there, his mouth, like, his jaw dropped open when he found out Cook was was falling to them and they can get him you know, where they were in the draft in that second round. So, yeah. uh, listen, a good landing spot for Dalvin Cook. Uh, let's real quick we'll go to Demarcus Walker, his landing spot. He goes 51st, only 10 picks later, to the Denver Broncos. And guys, I mean, I think uh, as far as ideal landing spots, they didn't get a whole lot better than Denver with, with what they have set up. Yeah, I think you're dealing with people that know how to do their job. Vance Joseph is a defensive-minded coach, albeit defensive backs is kind of what he's cut his teeth on. But he's a guy that still starts with the defense. He cares about that. John Elway is a good operator of a football team. He looks for talent. He looks for value in talent. He loved Marcus Walker. I think he truthfully was surprised that he lasted to that pick and that they got him. He was obviously very happy after the draft with getting a player. I know all coaches, all GMs talk about, oh, it was value. It was great. Highest guy on our board. There's never been a bad draft or a bad signing day until four four years later. I think it was clearly evident from the way Elway talked about him immediately plugging into the defensive line and filling a role that they had vacated a couple years ago by departures as a guy that they did definitely have on their board. They definitely wanted, they definitely valued, and they definitely thought would fit in. And I think – for Walker, he's a guy that may not be the superstar talent, but he's going to be a very good contributor in a talented defensive line. I think he immediately finds a role in that rotation. It's just versatility. He can play inside. He can play outside. He doesn't have to be the star that he was on the defensive line here. He can be a complementary piece. And that's a really, really good defense to have in Denver, that front seven. You know, Vaughn Miller, Adam Walker. I I think it's just a good pick. He doesn't have to play as many plays as he did at Florida State. I think there was a lot of chatter with the draft analysts that he didn't really show it on certain plays. Well, again, eight hundred snaps. Realize eight hundred <laughs> snaps. Two hundred eighty pounds. Nobody's being asked to do that. Yeah. And whether Demarcus was asked to do that or whether he wanted to do it, he he showed a high motor, yeah. an exceptionally high number of plays. If, if people are questioning Demarcus Walker's. Uh, effort and his hustle and determination, all those things, you know, those those keywords you like to throw out, um, that's just a misevaluation because not very few tried harder than he did. Yeah, and he did it for two years straight. Yeah. He produced at a high level. And the greatest thing about DeMarcus, beyond the fact that he naturally creates a chip on his shoulder to kind of invigorate the way he plays, when it mattered, when it had to be done, when it had to happen, DeMarcus Walker did it. And there's no, I don't like using the word clutch. I don't really believe in clutch, especially like in baseball. But Demarcus Walker was a clutch player. When you needed a play, most times over the last two seasons on defense, he came up with a play. And I remember it was the Ole Miss game, and my first game, you know, writing for twenty four seven, and I'm sitting next to 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 me and Bob, and uh, and Chris says after De- Walker gets one sack, he looks at me and said, "Walker's kind of streaky with this. Like, you know, watch out for him to to maybe get more than one." So four and a half sacks later, and <laughs> he almost single handedly changed the complexion of that game. Uh, listen, guys, I think with Walker, like we talk about fits, 
a lot of time you'll see an NFL team try to project a player into a different spot than than what they played in college, and and that's fine. You're projecting on how a player not plays in college and performs in college, but how they project in the NFL in different schemes, different roles, and you move them around and you try to see how they fit what you're doing. Denver, by the way, they're talking about Walker. Seems like they have a really good grasp of who he is as a player. Uh, they're going to have him as a defensive end in that 3-4, which makes sense given his you know, he's stout and he can hold up against the run. And then they're talking about kicking him inside as a situational interior pass rusher. I mean, that's what he did at Florida State, and that's what he did really, really well. So they have a good grasp of what Walker's doing, and I think, you know, that's what you look for is is a team that's going to play to your strengths, and he seems like he's found that home. I'm excited for him because I think he's he's worked hard to, to kind of have this miraculous story, the guy that we all kind of, I mean, I would say I kind of counted him out. I didn't think he'd be an impact player at Florida State, at least more than a, a solid starter or rotational player, and he turned to be one of the best you know pass rushers in, in Florida State history. Uh, with that, we'll circle back around the draft. We'll take some questions at the end of the podcast here. Uh, but let's let's talk about some other sports that are going on because uh, you know even though spring football is done and hoops is done, there's still a lot going on. Guys, I'll let you kind of you're, you're much more privy to the baseball team than I am. Take it away with baseball and kind of uh, showing a little bit of signs of life, but not a great series with Virginia this week. So go ahead and, and I'll let you have the floor for a few minutes there. Yeah, it's it's been a really up and down season, and and honestly, I think we're going to see the last month what we maybe expected to see earlier in the season with a fully healthy lineup from, you know, Taylor Walls at the top to J.C. Flowers at the bottom. You know, if, if Jackson Luke can stay healthy, may the fourth be with him. <laughs> um, this, this could be a really interesting lineup down the stretch. They've, they've got a really bad series coming up this weekend. There's really no way to sugarcoat it. It's Pacific. It's four games. Um, enjoy four wins, and if they don't get four, it's a big problem. But you know, something that Chris and I have talked about is they've, they've got to come up with a solution for their starting rotation. Um, I think the answer is moving Drew Carlton back into the rotation. He's not needed as a reliever or as a closer this weekend against Pacific. It's just you're not going to have safe situations. Um, I like Carlton. He's a, he's a fun pitcher to watch. He's not extremely, um, I would say, gifted with plus pitches. But he's a bulldog. He's a fighter. Um, not just that super regional where he had two hit shutout. He's a guy that gets better as the season goes on. And I'd like to see Carlton get into the rotation this weekend against Pacific. And maybe that's an opportunity for him to heat up down the stretch for them to develop another starter who they can count on and and make a run at uh, at the regionals. Yeah, I agree with Bob. I feel like with Carlton, a big thing with him is he tends to do his best pitching late in the season. He kind of, you know does his best on the back stretch of a season. I think they need to move Holton into the ace role, move Sands to the third role, and put Carlton in the middle. I think that kind of stabilizes that. With the middle relief, I don't really expect it to turn some corner and become magically special. They've had some better appearances here recently, but they also have their moments where they still struggle. The biggest thing FSU can do to help themselves down the stretch and when they get into postseason play is the fielding simply has to be better and the base running has to be better. They don't have a margin for error. They can't give away free outs on offense, and they can't allow extra outs on defense. Not something they can afford to do. They have to allow the starting pitching to get through jams. Too often this year, we've kind of seen starting pitching get um, almost ambushed or sabotaged by the fielding where extra outs are given, and you know it turns into a bad inning instead of being a one-run inning where you get out of it and it's still a good game. It turns into a four- or five-run inning. They just can't afford to keep doing that. I don't think they're going to magically become this better baseball team. I think they get sent on the road for a regional. 
for them, I think it would be better to go to Auburn than to Starkville, which are the projections that you see right now from Baseball America and D1 Baseball. And, you know, go from there. If they get hot down the stretch, they're a talented enough team to make some noise, but they obviously have some flaws. I think at this rate, you're kind of working toward 2018. You're, you're trying to continue to develop some of these younger players like Drew Mendoza, who you know lost a lot of time early in the season with a thumb injury. This is going to be a really talented roster coming back for 2018. Potentially could have you know your top two starters in Sands and Holton. Um, Drew Carlton will likely be gone in draft, but you'll have a lot of good players coming back. Jackson Luke, J.C. Flowers in the outfield. Mendoza could move to short. That's where he played a lot in high school. Um, then you have a question at third, is that Tyler Daughtry? Second could be Nick Durr. Cal Raleigh would be a, an excellent junior catcher, moving into potentially his last season. So I think at this point it's kind of tough to say wait till 2018 when, when this team could be really special. But, you know, the, the team is what it is. It's, it's struggled defensively. They've had a lot of holes in the bullpen, and, and the rotation's been inconsistent. Um, you know, the way Carp started, you, you had some optimism there. But it just hasn't been seen in, what, the last month and a half or so with him. So so we'll see. It's, it's definitely a team that's uh, headed on the road for the regionals, which is kind of unusual. I can't even remember the last time that's happened um, where they, they haven't been a number one seed. I know they were up at UConn. Athens Regional, I believe. Yeah, maybe that's Early it. Early mid-2005-ish, 5-6, somewhere in so that ballpark. We're talking about a, a good long time, a decade. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of unusual to see a, a team – really not be in a good position for the postseason. They always kind of set themselves up to where they're, they're ready to peak in May, and, and they haven't they haven't set themselves up well at all. Yeah, they let us down early this year. That's what Bob's trying to say nicely. They're playing they, po- they're playing possum. It's a bold yeah. strategy. Let's see if it, uh, if it works. I think it would be foolish to not bring up Wilcox's comments to Tallahassee Democrat about <laughs> Mike Martin this week. I don't think it was anything earth-shattering. I think we all understood that the extension Martin got after last season was about record chasing. But I think that's a lack of awareness on the AD's part about making those comments when your baseball team's currently in the thralls of a season where they've struggled a great deal and where coaching decisions can fairly be questioned, like you know taking your ace and making him your bullpen guy after one weekend and then not moving him back when you clearly don't need a bullpen guy. You need guys that can get you five to seven quality innings. So I just found the comments kind of funny, humorous. Um, just want to throw it out there. Discussing uh, extensions that aren't contract extensions at the end of a basketball season. Yeah. Um, now baseball living long after a down season. Not a lot of not a lot of self awareness. There, there's some about understanding the pulse of a fan base and the thought process of people and handling that in an appropriate manner. You know, like Friday news dump when you don't want to put news out, you put it out when everybody's gone home. They aren't real good at understanding how to handle that. They were great at the Jameis news dump yeah. at 11, 11 p.m. on a Friday night. I was about to go out and have some fun. Yeah, my wife really appreciated that one. She, she was real high on that one. Anyways, let's pivot <laughs> before we get ourselves in hot water. Uh, Chris, you were at softball last night, and uh, Florida State beats uh, rival Florida in, uh, in dramatic fashion, walk-off uh, home run. Uh, what was the atmosphere like? And uh, can you kind of put into perspective like what this season for those who aren't following softball uh, closely? A really special year for 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 softball this season, huh? Yeah, Lonnie Alameda, the head coach of softball, and the girls have done a fantastic job. Undefeated at home on the season. Last night was their last home game before the regionals. Have they ever done that? Um, I them? don't know offhand to be perfectly honest with you. I I'd be willing to say no, but I'm not sure. 
Um, co- I really, my, softball my softball history really is only <laughs> since I got married because my wife's more into softball than I am. But I don't mind going and watching it. With well, what her. about since you guys got married? They haven't been undefeated. Right? Not that I can call them. They're undefeated in the ACC. They beat Florida, who you know was number one. FSU and Florida have kind of traded that ranking here over the last eight or so weeks. Um, the girl that they beat last night on the mound for UF, I think she had twenty-one strikeouts in ten and a third innings. I mean, it was she was masterful. She gave up really only two or three bad hits, a triple that set up the two-run shot to win it and the home run earlier in the game. She'd not given up a home run all year. She had a .160 ERA. FSU goes out there and beats UF, ends a six-game losing streak to Gators. I think it just defines what we kind of already knew about this team. They're capable of winning the whole thing if they want to. I mean, they're good enough. They've got the pieces. They've got the pitching. They've got the coaching. They've got the hitting. You know, every time up with a couple of girls, especially early in the lineup, they can put one out of the park. It, they're an impressive bunch. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm a softball aficionado. I don't, you know, understand all the nuances of the game, but I know what a good team looks like, and they're a pretty good team. All right, and then uh, before we get to, to questions, which, again, I apologize, we're a couple days behind. Again, blame Comcast. Uh, tweet Comcast angrily. Comcast cares, except for about our podcast. And all their other customers, too. They don't really care about that. Oh, one other topic that we wanted to get to, kind of in the news, um, it's never too early to start talking about basketball season. And uh, FSU got a basketball commit the other day for its first in the class of 2018. Devin, is it Devin Vassil? Is that how it's pronounced? I'm not sure if it's pronounced Vassil or Vassil. I've only actually messaged with the young man. I haven't actually talked to him on the phone. But he's a combo guard type, a good scorer. Leonard actually went to see him last weekend on the AAU circuit at the Terrific 24. I think he put up about four dozen points in that game. So he can score in bunches. FSU was real early on him. They were his first high major offer. Texas Tech followed. He also had Furman, UNF, Stetson. Not the kind of offer list that sets your world on fire. But I think this is a case where FSU kind of feels like they're ahead of the curve on a kid. He's a Atlanta kid, uh, Peachtree Ridge High School, which is Suwannee, Georgia, just outside the Atlanta area. Talented kid, good basketball player. They like him. They think he fits what they do. He can play a couple different spots. He's got nice length, which they always look for, especially for the defensive end. So, you know, I think they they like him. They'll they'll reach on kids sometimes, and some turn out to be really good players, and some don't, and it's just kind of how they recruit. But they also have to sort of recruit that way because they're not a blue blood, and they're not going to, you know, always land a Jonathan Isaacs and Dwayne Bacons of the world. You said four dozen points. Does that mean 40? I think he had 45. I don't know the exact total. It was around 45, 48. Four dozen is 48. I know you're not a math major. You write for a living. What's math? Well, he doesn't even have a face on his. I'm looking at his profile right now on my phone. He doesn't even have a face there. It's just this uh, ambiguous, shadowy figure. So, listen, if they got it, if they got like a shadowy figure that like in uh, Game of Thrones, they kind of just pop into rooms and, and kill someone or make a three, then that's pretty good on them. So... Uh, big time recruiting talk here at the Knowles 24-7 podcast, which, by the way, well, guys, we will have a, uh, a recruiting-specific podcast up either a little later on Thursday or Friday. Uh, that's if uh, Tallahassee doesn't get blown away in the storm. We haven't gotten rain in uh, probably two or three weeks here, and now there's a monsoon coming through, and there's locusts flying outside of Bob's uh, window, and it's it not looking great. So, hey, with that, let's uh, let's get to uh, to some questions from our from our message borders, actually some really good stuff that, that I was excited to get into a couple days ago before, again, Comcast really threw a wrench in things. Uh, but it's it's a mixture of some draft talk, uh, some big picture, you know, kind of macro talk with Florida State and its program, and then some nuances of scheme. So it kind of 
sets everywhere, but let's stick with draft uh, questions to begin with. Uh, FSU1995 asks us, which undrafted Knowles have the best shot of making a roster? Uh, the undrafted Knowles, okay, off the top of my head, we had, uh, let's see, Freddie Stevenson, fullback to the Chicago Bears, Kermit Whitfield to the Chicago Bears, wide receiver, uh, Bobo Wilson, wide receiver to the Tampa Buccaneers, and then Travis Rudolph, another wide receiver. God, those wide receivers are great this year. Undrafted free agent <laughs> to, to the New York Giants, uh, and actually signed a pretty uh, lucrative contract as far as undrafted free agents are concerned with the Giants, so Rudolph was a commodity. Uh, going around the table, I'll start with Bob because I kind of think I know where he's going to go with this, and I know how much he loves talking about this guy. Uh, who do you think uh, has the best chance of making uh, making a roster as an undrafted free agent from this class of Florida State players? You know, I'm going with Freddie Stevenson. It's pretty obvious. Um, I just talked with him yesterday. He's he's really excited. He's going to go up to the uh, Bears rookie mini camp next week. It's going to start uh, next Friday. So um, Freddie's look fullback has been a, a devalued position. I think we all kind of understand that. But there's there is a need for him in situations and. In the four-minute offense, he's he's shown the Bears from the Senior Bowl when that staff was there in Mobile that he's a guy who can contribute on special teams as a receiver. They see him as a guy who can play a little bit of of, a tailback too. So if I were picking one guy who I thought could make the the real roster or the practice squad, I would go with Freddie. The, the situation with Travis is, is kind of tough. I think he's landed in a really crowded wide receiver room with uh, with Odell Beckham and uh, Brandon Marshall. Obviously, with Travis's story, we'd like to see him find success. I'm not sure that's the right fit. Maybe he'll find another team where where there is another fit at some point in the in the NFL. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Bob, the president of Freddie Stevenson Fan Club. The, or when are we going to read the Freddie Stevenson autobiography? Or not autobiography, because you'll be writing it. Or you'll be ghostwriting it for Freddie. When is that dropping? Uh, give, what if I told us, you there time. was a linebacker who would become an NFL fullback? Um, <laughs> but <laughs> the Bears are a good situation. John Fox is an old-school football coach. They'll use a fullback. They had Paul Lasick on the roster last year. He's a second-year guy out of BYU, which means he's probably only about 35 years old. <laughs> um, you know, Freddie comes in. He can do a lot of different things at that spot. He's going to always compete. You know, he's a good teammate in that sense where he, he comes to do his job. He does it well, and he does it consistently. I don't know if he'll definitely make that roster. He may only be a practice squad guy, or maybe he gets himself latched on with another team by, you know, good word of mouth, because NFL front offices do talk a good bit, as people know. So I think it's a good spot for him. And truthfully, I think he's the most talented of the four undrafted free agents. I just think he has the best opportunity because he's the best player. Uh, I don't want to be boring and agree with you guys, but I think that that's the most logical option because, as you said, um, Freddie's versatility uh, the fact that he played linebacker in high school probably helps him on special teams. He did a ton of special teams work at Florida State. Was always kind of that midline guy in the return, uh, in the return kickoff return. Obviously, uh, an accomplished fullback, a three-year starter, uh, and versatile too because you don't see those true plotting, you know, 260-pound fullbacks anymore that are just straight ahead, you know, battering rams. Like he does a little bit of everything. So. Um, if he does make a roster and he does contribute, because he does a lot of things well, if not spectacularly, he does a lot of things solidly. Uh, so all we're all we all agree there. Freddie Stevenson has a has a legitimate shot to make a roster or training camp. I just don't see how the other you know, diminutive wide receivers like the Bobo and Kermit really carve out a role. Travis has a shot because he's talented, but like Bob said, I don't know if it's with the Giants. There's obviously you know, Sterling Shepard, all the wide receivers that are there already, and a lot of big personalities too. 
I just don't know how much room there is for, for him on that roster, at least right away, unless there's injuries or something down the road. Uh, next question, again, kind of sticking with the NFL draft here, is from DD Pudge 14 Can I say Pudge on the podcast? Is that okay? All right. Um, first is, talk about how y'all were wrong about Dalvin being drafted in the first and how embarrassed you were to be so wrong. Who was... Uh, I cried myself to sleep. That's how embarrassed I was. No, I, I was surprised. I thought he'd be a first-round pick. I think he's a first-round player. Going back to our discussion earlier, when you're discussing a guy as a potential NFL rookie of the year, which I think is a fair discussion, especially with the team he landed with and the amount he's going to need to be used, I think that kind of credits itself as a guy who's probably one of the better offensive players in the whole damn draft. So I uh, I wasn't embarrassed by it. I, I thought it was foolish. I think the NFL draft, you know, I wrote about 2018, I think I used the word potential about 800 times. I think the NFL draft's a little too obsessed with potential instead of going, but, you know, this guy's pretty good at playing a game of football. He lights up the scoreboard. So, you know, if I was in the NFL front office of a team and my rushing attack was not very good last year, I would have definitely considered taking Dalvin Cook, especially with Leonard Fournette off the board at number four. I still think he's clearly a better player than Christian McCaffrey. While he may not do as much as Christian McCaffrey does, just straight up running the ball, working the running back position, I'd take him over McCaffrey all day. So... I think he's better than the eighth best player in the NFL draft according to NFL teams. So it is what it is. Yeah, the Vikings were 32nd in the league in rushing last year, and, and they had to make some changes. They have some offensive line issues, but I think Dalvin, yes, it was it was disappointing for him. I'm sure he'll use that as a chip on his shoulder. Be careful. Forward. He doesn't need anything else on those shoulders. Well, <laughs> he already has a few. Yeah, he's got a few chips and a few screws in there too maybe. Actually, I don't know whether he has hardware in there, but – yeah, bad choice of words on my part. But, you know, <laughs> Delvin is a guy who I think um, if he if he can keep those shoulders healthy, if he's not asked to be a 25-carry-a-game guy, if he can get the ball, let's say 10 to 15 carries, a few receptions out of the backfield, he's going to make the Vikings really happy. And, you know, I, I think some, some teams probably missed and misjudged him and, and, and misjudged that, you know, his production is, is incredible. His film is just something that we've we've never seen before. So yeah. one thing to add on the Vikings part of that is with Latavius Murray on that roster, and I think Murray's a guy they obviously will keep, he's more of a battering ram. He's like a two hundred and thirty pound guy, six foot two plus. So I don't think Cook necessarily has to be the banger that's gonna have to hit the hole and just push the pile. I think Cook's going to be used a little bit more to bring explosive plays to the offensive attack. So I think that's a good thing for Cook, especially when we're talking about durability and the issues he's had in the past with injuries to the shoulder. You know, running backs in the NFL are going to be used to their worn out and then thrown away, but I think that helps with Cook's tread on the tire that he's not necessarily going to have to fill that certain role for the Vikings. You know who was really pissed off about Dalvin Fallen? And is, is Wayne McGahee, friend of the show, or friend of us, at least he's never been on the show, but Tallahassee Democrat writer, is a Bucks fan. I don't think he'd mind sharing because he had pictures of him wearing a Bucks hat on Twitter. Uh, he sent his wife into early labor. He was so <laughs> he, he was over at my house watching the draft. And uh, he, he, congratulations to Wayne. He just had his uh, first baby and uh, everything went A-OK. But his wife was over watching the draft with us and uh, – and five minutes after leaving my house, uh, she went into labor. I got a text that the water broke. And all I could think was, thank God, because I just bought the house like a month ago. And there's new hardwood floors, and I would not have wanted to clean that up. So Sadly, the kid was born naked, though, because I couldn't put the Dalvin Cook Bucks jersey on him that they had pre-ordered. Yeah, the, the kid's name was called before Dalvin Cook's was, which yeah. is actually pretty uh, pretty impressive there. So uh, none of us are really that embarrassed. 
none, none of those are that embarrassed because uh, I think we kind of thought there was a chance Dalvin could fall. We kind of wrote about that, and people thought it was you know, crazy. I didn't think it would happen, but I, I did think there was a chance for all the reasons we've we've discussed. And I totally stole Chris's joke, by the way, with Dalvin Cook's being called first or uh, Baby Wayne's name being called first. Anyways, other question from DD Pudge 14 is talk about the draft as a whole. It's not really questions. They're just telling us what to say. Uh, favorite picks, even non-FSU related. Um, I know you're a Jags fan, Brendan. That's true. Uh, I think a couple of y'all are Bucks fans. I don't think, Chris, you're a Dolphins fan, right? Yeah, and, and so is my too. man Bob over here. All right, let's talk about your guys' draft real quick. I know people don't really want to care too much or don't care a whole heck of a lot. At least one person does about the draft. I will say this. I would much rather have had Dalvin Cook or Joe Mixon in the second round than Leonard Fournette as a Jags fan fourth overall. But that's all I'll say. I wasn't really thrilled with the draft. Yeah, yeah. Truthfully, my favorite pick by the Dolphins was probably their last pick, which was Isaiah Ford out of Virginia Tech. Really good pick in the seventh round. Yeah, Yeah. I love Isaiah. I've known Isaiah since he was a high school kid over at Trinity Christian in Jacksonville. He's not real fast. I mean, that's the thing is he probably went to combine and ran, you know, four high something. But he catches it. He'll go up and get it. He can run routes. He knows how to get himself open. He knows how to play the game of football, and he's good at it. And I think he'll be a nice compliment at the position for uh, the Dolphins. You know, they added Tankersley, which they needed another DB, which was nice. Um, you know, I didn't love Charles Harris pick in the first round. I truthfully wish they went with Reuben Foster at that point. I thought he was the best value on the board on the defensive side of the ball where they need help. So, yeah, and on athletic defensive end in the first round, like how, yeah, he, how can you go wrong? He can work kind of inside, though, kind of like Walker in some ways, where he's going to be able to push the pile. And his first couple steps aren't bad. He's, he's not, quick off. Yeah, yeah he, he can do some things. I don't think it was a horrible pick, but I, I won't lie. When it came up on the screen, I was like, who the hell is that? You know, I had that moment of like, why are we picking that guy when all these guys are on the board? But after watching some stuff on him after the draft and reading up on him a bit more, I... I don't dislike it as much as I did in the moment. Overall, though, I thought the 49ers had a great draft. I thought they owned the first round. Yeah, I go they go John Lynch. Beers. Yeah, Impressive. John, it's funny. John Lynch gets hired and people are like, oh, he's inexperienced. He doesn't know how to be a GM. He's not going to do a good job. And then he goes to the draft and literally emasculates the Chicago Bears. <laughs> so I thought they did a really good job. I thought they added two great talents in the first round. But the draft's such a crapshoot. You know, I, doing some of the stories leading up to the draft, looking back on, like, the E.J. Manuel draft, for example, all the quarterbacks in that draft turned out to be completely duds, crap. I think this year's draft's quarterback talent has a chance to kind of emulate that year where nobody really turns out to be very good. I thought Trubisky at two was insane. I thought the amount they gave up for Trubisky at two was even more insane. And I like Trubisky. So that's kind of my uh, quick thoughts on the draft. I'll shut up now. Bob, who's your favorite favorite Finns pick, or what do you think about about your team? I'm okay with the Finns picks. I mean, honestly, it, it's a team that's probably gonna at best be nine and seven. It's it's a uh, it's a franchise that I've been frustrated with for uh, for more than a decade, going back to the uh, Jimmy Johnson years. But thanks, Patriots. Yeah, and that uh, that Nick Saban guy really didn't help out by letting Drew Brees go to New Orleans. That didn't exactly work out too well. I don't dare think. you besmirch Dante Culpepper. Hey, it opened the door for the greatness that is Ryan Tannenhill. Ugh, at least you guys got his pretty wife around there. To He's to the best at. converted wide receiver quarterback in the NFL, without a doubt. Moving right along. <laughs> Leonard Fournette at four to the Jaguars? You you happy with that? No, I wasn't thrilled. Like I said, I think you got have gotten. I mean, one of you knew Dalvin Cook, but you knew Joe Mixon was probably going to be there in that range, and I would have. I 
comparable talents. But um, if if Tom Coughlin's going to run the Jaguars, you're going to draft Tom Coughlin players. Oh, you're going to get Fournette yeah. Is definitely Tom it, Coughlin. I, I was resigned to that fact. I thought maybe the only thing that would change is if Solomon Thomas from Stanford, who I like, because he's yeah. like he's like Demarcus Walker, but more he does he's basically Demarcus Walker, but a more athletic version of yeah. him. And I was excited about that prospect of putting him on the pretty good defensive line already, but. You know, running back fourth overall, like, I mean, he better be good. And I do like, you know, whether it's Blake Bortles, that's going to mean he's going to be running the team this year. Whether he's the long-term option, doesn't look like it. Uh, you're at least drafting guys that you can either, that are going to help your current quarterback out, or at least, you know, ideally, you know, help out whoever the, the next guy in line is. I will say this, Blair Brown, the linebacker from Ohio, is a guy that I really, really liked. I think I've said this before. I just completely nerd out during the draft and, and end up looking, like, at 200 guys. Like, not highlight tapes, but legitimately, like, go through game games and rewatch him and he was a linebacker from Ohio that I really 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 liked um and thought like he would, was maybe like a third round second round guy because he had really good metrics uh, really good testing just a little short uh, and the Jacks scooped him up in the fifth round so I was excited about that but anyways enough about our teams um we're going to kind of pivot now from um draft questions let's see we're going to go with Noel I think it's a Kiefer asked about the development issues at wide receiver is it recruiting or is it Dossie uh, that's Lawrence Dossie, the wide receiver coach. And then also, kind of keeping on that, uh, will they use uh, George Campbell on the slot? Uh, do you think he's finally healthy enough to make an impact? Uh, so kind of address that. Chris, what are your thoughts on the wide receiver position as a whole and kind of why we haven't seen stellar production the last couple of years from it? And is Campbell a guy who can kind of bolster that group? I think it's fair to say some of the issue is Dossie. Um, and that's not to say Dossie's a bad coach. I actually think Dossie's a very good coach. I think he understands. But can he recruit Tampa? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Dossie understands what he's supposed to do with his receivers, how to develop what they're supposed to do. He communicates well with them. He's able to develop guys. Now, the reason that's not equating to better players, I think, may also kind of play with recruiting. You know, I, I think Rudolph's a guy that obviously was overranked when you look back in retrospect at being a five-star. I don't think he's a five-star talent. I think he's a talented kid, but not to that level. You know, he's not the Julio Jones and those types when I think of five-stars receivers. I think he's more of a good receiver. Kerman and Bobo were kind of what they were. They were midgets that were, you know, role players in an offense, and they played a role. Now, guys like Auden Tate and Iquan Murray, who I think is an extremely talented slot, George Campbell, who's just ultra-talented from an athletic standpoint, but has yet really produced in the college level. Those are guys that you can kind of point to, and if they don't pan out, turn into something, then I think you have to say it's you know squarely on coaching. But we also, every time Dossie's discussed, we forget that Rashad Green was ultra-consistent and phenomenal at what he did, and he's gone to the NFL level, and he's struggled, you know, honestly. And Kelvin Benjamin is a guy who came in with an earthload of talent, but also was fat, lazy, and did not like to listen to people. And he developed into a good player who became an NFL pro because he did buy into Jimbo. He did buy into Dossie. He bought into the coaching, and he produced at the level he was kind of, you know, God-given talent allowed him to. But he's gone to pros, and while he's been a productive player, he's also had issues with the weight and some of the things that kind of bit him in the ass here at FSU. So long story short, yeah, I think Dossie deserves some blame. I think it's fair to say that. The receivers is a position where there's a lot of great talent in the country, and you're supposed to go out and get in. You're supposed to develop it, and you're supposed to see returns in the pros and in the NFL draft, and we haven't quite seen that. So I think it's fair for people to criticize him, but I think to make it as simple as an argument that he's not a good coach is kind of foolish. And these injuries that guys like George Campbell and Keith Gavin, they've had some significant injuries. And I think it's just going to take some time and some patience to see how it, how it comes through. 
I'm not sure it's as necessary to have guys healthy in the spring. Like, it would have been great to see George Campbell have some snaps this spring and see him in the game, but it's more important to have him near 100% around August 1 when the spring, when the preseason camp opens. I'm really curious to see Keith Gavin. I think this is a very talented athletic receiver who could play a number of different wide receiver positions. Um, I think you can see him in the return game, too. So the only question I have is, is just, can these guys stay healthy? I feel like we've constantly said it, but if, if they can stay on the field, this could really be a special, albeit small, group of receivers, maybe. Yeah, and one thing to add on receivers is, look at some of the guys they recruited in recent years who went elsewhere. Malachi Dupree, I think he was a seventh-round pick. Speedy Noel didn't get picked, and some of that's off-field issues. But uh, receiver's kind of a hit-or-miss spot. I mean, you know, for every guy like a Mike Williams who's supposed to be good when he walks on a college campus and he turns out to be good, there's guys that just simply it doesn't happen. Now, FSU's had more misses and hits, and that's somewhat concerning. But it's not a position that's just as easy as snap your fingers and guys who are really talented turn into great players. It doesn't always happen that way. Unless you're Clemson. And <laughs> I think that's the yeah. frustration with the fan base yeah. is, is that – Clemson's had a lot of guys come in and play early, obviously in a very different offensive scheme, and that's part of the equation, too, is this isn't really an offense that, and that's something to evaluate if you're Florida State, but this is an offense that lends itself to coming in and playing early, the Jimbo yeah. Fisher pro style. And with the Clemson comment, two of those guys are Tampa boys, or three, mm-hmm. actually. Ray Ray McLeod, Tay Scott, who had a very productive career, and mm-hmm. Deion Kane yeah. is probably going to be one of the best receivers in the nation this mm-hmm. coming year. So, you know, it amplifies, and the fan base kind of you know gets angry by it. It, when there's an easy other example to point to, it causes anger to be much easier to come by. And Marlon, hum- or Marlon Humphrey, I'm talking about Alabama. Um, oh, my God. Who's the water? Amari Cooper yeah. uh, from Miami. Who's Ridley. the current one? Uh, yeah, Ridley, Calvin Ridley from Miami. And I think that's kind of where you start getting into the frustration. And I'm, I've defended I'm usually a defender of coaches because I don't think it's ever cut and dry. Like you said, Chris, it's never one or the other. But you're in the state of Florida. You're in a talent-rich area. When it comes to skill position players like wide receiver, there should be an abundance of them in Alabama, in Georgia, in Florida, and you're recruiting hotbeds all around in that area. And you're seeing other schools getting guys not just producing that wide receiver but producing at a high level, producing immediately, and then becoming first-round draft picks. Uh, I will say that the criticism that comes to Dossie is kind of like it becomes twofold with the fan base, and it's weird. People think that, is he not recruiting well and evaluating well? Is that on, on Dossie? But then he also, you know, when, when he gets credit for like a Kelvin Benjamin or Rashad Green, when people say, well, those are generational, you know, Kelvin, Kelvin Benjamin's a freakish athlete and Rashad Green is one of the most motivated, polished, you know, college players that, that have ever come through Florida State. So it can't be both. It can't be that he doesn't, you know, coach well or evaluate. He's got to be doing one or the other at a high level. And, and to me, I think what we've seen is they've missed just evaluating guys. And you look at the NFL draft this year, three wide receivers go undrafted. Uh, you look at Erman Lane, move to safety. Uh, you look at some of the guys that have kind of came into Florida State and, and flamed out and just have transferred, like a Pig Harrison, like a, was it Marvin? Um, Isaiah Jones. Isaiah Jones, yeah, Isaiah Jones from uh, from Panhandle there. There have been a handful of guys that have just come and haven't worked out. And then, like Bob said, you have the injuries, uh, like to Campbell and, and, and Tate was injured a lot as a freshman. Murray's development was kind of up and down as a freshman because he was injured. So there's been a lot of just bad luck, uh, missed evaluations. I don't think it's like coaching. I, I don't think that Lawrence Dossie can't coach. I think that yeah. that whole narrative is silly. I think he, he can. The frustration is going to continue to some degree because Jerry Judy's about to go Alabama and be really, really good. If anybody watched Bama's spring game, they saw how good Jerry Judy is. And Jerry Judy was that good in high school. 
But the thing is, Amari Cooper set the standard. Ridley's following it. Or actually, Julio Jones set the standard. Amari followed it. You know, Calvin followed it. And now uh, Jerry's following it. So it's kind of an easy thing when you have that one force-fed wide receiver who's ultra-productive to then go recruit the next one. And FSU had Kelvin Benjamin, and that's opened the door some to get big, physical, athletic receivers. You know, I think Gavin and Tate are largely at FSU because they look at that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they need another guy. I don't think Rashad Green was a guy that set a standard that other guys wanted to definitely follow. While I love Rashad as a player, I don't think he was flashy and created that kind of element among the recruiting Receivers that, oh, I want to go be the next Rashad Green at FSU. I don't think that exists. So w- once you get a guy like that, it's real easy to then recruit the next guy. But the thing is, you need that to happen. They need a guy like Nike Wani to be ultra good, or a guy like George Campbell to finally live up to the player who's supposed to be as a recruit. You get that kind of production with DeAndre swinging the ball around in a pretty well-balanced offense that's going to use multiple receivers. All of a sudden, it's much easier to recruit wide receivers. I mean, we had the discussion... Similar to this a few years back with Odell Higgins when he had, you know, the misses with Marvin Austin, who got straight up paid to go to UNC. And, you know, they had some issues with injuries and, you know, the production had kind of fallen off from what it was earlier in time at the position. And all of a sudden, he's got that thing rolling and D-tackles, it's great. So I don't think it's time to, like, sell on Lawrence Dossie, but it's obvious that it's time for, you know, the ever to flow to happen. Which way is this going to go and what's it going to be in the future and is that position going to finally live up to what it should be at a school like Florida State? And to your point, too, once you get that prototype, like look at look at running back at Florida State. You know, Florida State basically put a big fat head or whatever it is of Dalvin Cook in, its, in his player's lounge. Yeah. And now you got Cam Akers, just yeah. like that. You have the heir apparent and a guy who is a clear talent that's going to make an impact at Florida State, almost and guaranteed. How many Percy Harvins has Urban Meyer recruited since Percy Harvins? Yeah, because I mean, you, it, all of a sudden it becomes real easy to say, hey, kid, come be this guy. And when they watch highlights of that guy, they want to go be that guy. I think you can do that with Kelvin. You can mm-hmm. show the national championship catch. You can show that season. You can show him annihilating the University of Florida. Mm-hmm. I mean, heck, show that every day. But uh, it's not as easy. Receivers are different types. You've got big. You've got slots. You've got kind of do-everything guys. You have the big example. You need more examples mm-hmm. of kind of a well-rounded guy to go be. And that kind of comes down to, again, prototypes like they thought they had the heir apparent to Rashad Green and Travis Rudolph, and he just wasn't the same guy. They thought they had Ermon Lane, who was supposed to have a lot of physical, compar- you know, be comparable to Kelvin Benjamin, and he's playing safety now. Yeah, It's not like Dossie got them and all of a sudden those guys turned to crap. They may have just missed out on what they were. We, as your evaluations, may have missed out as a recruiting service on exactly what their ceilings were. Um, so anyway, you know, wide receiver, just uh, it's a tough position, like Chris said, to sometimes evaluate, even though it, it would seem like it further away from the ball, just translating with the way a player fits in a certain offensive scheme isn't always easy. Uh, one more thing on receiver that the same uh, person, Nola Kiefer, asked about George Campbell. I mean, I don't know if you can kind of, if you're Florida State, whether you depend on him at this point. The injuries, the concussions, now the, the whatever the groin uh, midsection abdominal injury is, like that's something that could be nagging. Maybe I mean, he has the talent to become a you know vertical threat. But I'm a proponent of until I see it consistently, I just I can't buy into it, and that's kind of where I'm at with 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 George Campbell. Yeah, it's pure wait and see. I mean, yeah. the kid's supremely talented from an athletic standpoint. He can do a lot of things. In his past, he used to fight the ball some, but I think he's even gotten over that in his college career with working in practice and stuff. But in a game setting, what have we ever seen George Campbell do? So you know, I I believe he's got a ton of talent. I think he can be a 
receiver one. You know, I think he's got that kind of athletic ability and the ability to make things happen on the field. And with FSU's propensity to like to go vertical at times, he's a guy that very much fits that role, has that ability. But, yeah, he's got to do it. Hopefully he goes out there and the light comes on and he's good from the get-go this year and he puts together a great year because he's a nice kid, he works hard, he's had a hell of a lot of bad luck with the injuries. But you just... You'd be living in fantasy land if you sat here and just said, "Oh, he's going to be great." Like, mm-hmm. yeah, he's just. There's nothing that's likely to believe yeah, that he, he. There's nothing on paper from his college career that makes you go, "Oh, yeah, he's ready. He's done it." And even in like the spring, because they did take such a kind of a soft approach with him of we're not going to overuse him, we're not going to reiterate the injuries. He's going to work some days and have some days off. You didn't see him consistently enough to know if it's there, if it's going to consistently be there. So. Yeah, I just complete wait and see for me with him. I would agree. I mean, you have to see it. I don't think Jimbo has seen it on the practice field enough, and and that's that's his deal is you've got to show it on the practice field consistently Mm -hmm. to get that chance on Saturdays, or you're just not going to get the chance. So I I think this could be the year, but I think that's what we're saying about a lot of these receivers. This Mm -hmm. could be the year for Campbell, Phillips, I think Gavin. Mm we don't see a lot of true freshman receivers come in and right away be able to contribute. Rashad did it like nobody else. Mm-hmm. Travis did it to a lesser extent. You know, could DJ Matthews be a, a guy who, who can contribute? That remains to be seen. But a lot of question marks about the receivers for sure. Uh, and that's kind of – we'll get off the receivers here, but the frustration is this is how many years in a row now where there's been you know pretty big question marks about the wide receivers. Um so let's move to uh, FSU Bone asked a couple really good big picture questions, but for the sake of time, I'm going to kind of narrow it down to just a couple here. And it's what upsets you the most about the program? Uh, what do you like most about the program? Uh, so kind of what are simplify What do you guys like about where the direction of the program is? What are things that may be alarming to you? And let's apply because he asked about this season, I think, as well. You know, I think this could be a really, really good season no matter what happens on September 2nd in Atlanta. I think even if Florida State loses, there's a good shot that they can go 11-1 and and be in position to win an ACC championship. And while a lot of people still cheapen what that trophy means, Florida State hadn't won it for a seven-year stretch from 2005 to 2012. And I think what Jimbo feels is that winning an ACC title is a true stepping stone. Players need to learn how to win a trophy and earn a ring on a conference level to then get back into the national championship discussion. And this is a roster right now where a lot of the players have never won an ACC title. If you think about it, Mm -hmm. they won three straight, but now they've seen Clemson win it. And I think a lot of those guys need to need to learn from the veterans about what it takes to win a conference title and get back to in position to uh, to be in the playoff. A lot of those veterans are gone too. Like the the final parts of the Jameis Winston era is Nate Andrews and who else? Like it's kind of uh, – but they do have they do have state championship rings. Uh, so they do have rings, Bob. It's not fair. They do have – they beat Florida and Miami and they got those that they love so much. Chris, what are, what are things that you like? I thought that would be funnier than it was, No. I just think you're salty. Um, 
I, I like that the program's still recruiting talent at a high level. I feel like the roster has a lot of guys capable of being really good football players. That's the first thing you need in college football. You're not going to win without talent. What I don't like is I, I truthfully have concerns that the offensive line development in recent years hasn't been all that good. And you don't win if you don't win in the trenches. And especially when you open with a team like Bama who's going to grapple and punch and push and pull like they do in the trenches, you better be ready to go. So I think that's a huge – we'll know what this team is capable of being, win or lose against Alabama, by what that offensive line is able to handle in the trenches against arguably one of the best defensive lines in the country. And I, I don't know if I don't like it, but I'm concerned about it. It is something that worries me. And some of it is – yeah, you know, we've talked about previously. They've had a couple gaps in recruiting on that in that area, which have kind of set up where they're relying on more young talent, and it's kind of put up or shut up time. They recruited a really good bunch two cycles ago. A couple of those guys are now ready to mature and play. I think Josh Ball is one that most of us would point to as the main guy. I'm also of the belief Baby on Johnson's a pretty big piece of the puzzle. We need to see if those guys are ready, if they can do it, if they can handle some of it. You know, if they can take the moments where they're gonna have a loss, you know, where they're going to do poorly on a rep, move on and handle it and get back to it and be able to do it at a high level. So that, for me, is the biggest thing we need to get answered in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, I mean, the offensive line is kind of, same thing with the wide receivers. It just has kind of had a lot of question marks now for a couple seasons in a row. Uh, And they've also had some bad luck, too, with injuries, with guys transferring uh, for the last couple classes. And they finally have just invested a ton of assets or a ton into acquiring assets, you know, scholarships into that position. Um, but that takes a little bit of time. It's not a plug-and-play position, really. So, you know, going and getting, you know, seven or eight offensive linemen in a class, like, doesn't help you right away. And we saw with the JUCO guys, that's kind of a, a mixed bag with Mavetti and Kareem Marley. They come in and play and not be terrible, but there's also a reason why they were, you know, junior college for the most part, too. It doesn't usually help out as much. Um, what upsets me the most about the program, as it applies to this year, um, hmm, what – Starting, if you're if you're FSU and you're a national championship contender, and, and a lot of it rides on, you know, we talked about the passing attack uh, with, with the wide receivers kind of coming to fruition and how your quarterback does with DeAndre Francois, your two wild cards are arguably a guy nicknamed Frenchie and Nooney, which which just, I mean, right there should be alarming to you, no? Like a Nooney and a Frenchie-led team as being the, the answers is not great. Uh, but in, in all seriousness, I, I think what, what kind of upsets me about the program or what I think the direction of the program that, that is concerning at times is there's been, at least in the past year or two, I, I think we've seen some signs of some stubbornness from the coaching staff of not being able to adapt quickly in season with personnel things, kind of having ideas that I had set in stone in the preseason of what the team could be. So that was particularly last year uh, with the pattern matching and the, the defensive backfield was not uh, – you know, the, the young defensive backs were not grasping a really complicated scheme. We did have a, a reader ask us to, to go over the intricacies of that, and I won't bore too many of the of the listeners right now with it, but basically it's super complex because it's like a matchup zone where it's blending man-to-man concepts with zone concepts. So you're you're you know you're basing on what our pattern, what our wide receiver does on a pattern with where your teammate is supposed to be as well, and it's just super complex. And you have to have versatile players to pull it off effectively. You can't yeah. have a guy who's good at one thing but poor at another trying to do multiple things. Because you're asked to He'll do get picked on. You're asked to do multiple things yeah. in, in, in any given play. And that's what's kind of coming down to is is putting, you know, square peg, round hole kind of kind of deal. Um, 
it took them how many games to kind of say screw that and let's you know go basics with you know basic zone stuff and man to man, which is what the players were clamoring for and wanting. And it took them how many games, four or five, and at that point, the season was kind of snowballing out of control and they yeah. kind of recalibrated. Uh, we've seen that with Jimbo not wanting to do RPO stuff and being begrudging, you know, being kind of an elitist with his offense. I mean, he knows a ton about offense, one of the best offensive minds that I'll ever be around in my career. But you know. He, his you know his inability to quickly do that and adapt uh, to that at least I I think has maybe kind of hindered uh, some development of what Florida State's offense can be. So that's been the one thing at least to me that's been a little a little alarming with with Florida State is is just some adapting not as quickly as you would like for an upper echelon program from a top tier elite championship contender. Uh, what I like most I kind of echo what Chris said I, the recruiting's still really good like they're recruiting versatile uh, freakish athletes all across the board. Uh, they're blending that with guys who are straight-up football players and getting some alpha dogs in there, and they're giving themselves a chance to compete every single year. Now, what you know, whether all those guys develop or not, you know, of course, that's a crapshoot. Uh, but they're giving themselves uh, some prototypes and some versatility, and I think that's something. Uh, if you're a Florida State fan, you at least are encouraging as long as this staff's in place, you're always going to at least have a, have a chance to be good. Um, and I think that's going to do it. you guys have anything else to add to the – to the podcast for for now we had a couple more questions but i just don't think we're gonna have enough time to get to all of it right now i can't think of anything that it's been a fun one it's been fantastic it's gloomy it's uh it's rainy outside i think we're kind of lethargic right now we're kind of and the it's like the dog days of summer it's a dog days of spring because the summer actually has more to write about right now than we're kind of sitting here twiddling our thumbs with the nfl draft stuff over and no real recruiting stuff going on so um thank you for the questions for engaging uh it's been fun. Uh, I'm Brendan Sinone with Knowles 24-7 Podcast. Thank you to Bob Ferranti and to Chris Neve for uh, joining me. We'll talk to you guys next time.